Hello, everybody. Welcome to the Juan Gaud Show. Today, we have a very special guest, two very special guests, actually, Tom Vase and Joe Carlasari, who is a Bitcoin attorney, Bitcoin lawyer, and he gave us some really interesting insights into the Ripple versus SEC case, the BlackRock ETF, the Binance uh, US drama, as well as the DPEG of the USDT to USD pair a few weeks ago. Um, and so really grateful for his uh, surprise appearance. Um, Tom Vase is a big fan of his, and so we obviously welcome him in the show. Uh, Tom Vase also was there, of course, and we had a very long discussion about all kinds of different issues, including, of course, the aforementioned Ripple versus SEC and BlackRock ETF stories. Uh, we also talked in general about all kinds of Bitcoin-related topics. We talked about financial literacy, um, how to learn to trade if you're inclined to do such a thing, and um, many other aspects of financial literacy, which I thought were really important. Uh, we talked about poker and why it's the greatest game in history. And... Um, yeah, all kinds of other stuff. I mean, I, it was a really fun conversation. I think you'll get a lot of value out of it, especially kind of we did a lot of uh, content around this this issue of the SEC ripple and uh, what that means for the future of this industry uh, or for the future of the SEC for that matter. Uh, we also talked about Unconfiscatable, which uh, we will be attending. Uh I partner up with Tom Vase on Confiscatable and BitcoinNews.com and we'll be attending the conference. And uh, so I hope that you guys can join us. I mean, it's going to be a good conference. Uh, Tom Vase has always put on really interesting conferences in Vegas for Confiscatable. It's a Bitcoin maximalist conference. It's a fantastic attendance list. We're going to have Giacomo Succo, Jimmy Song, Adam Back, Jack Mahler, Greg Foss, Mark Foss, MVK, the creator of Cold Card, and many other uh, hardcore Bitcoiners. This is not a this is a Bitcoin not blockchain conference, uh, so you have a sense of what to expect. It's a small conference uh, with a limited amount of, of spaces, so this isn't going to be like Bitcoin Miami where it's just gigantic. No, it's going to be small, cozy, and you actually get to spend a few days and hang out with people and have some fun. Uh, there's a poker tournament which I'm definitely going to be joining. I'm going to start training uh, my poker skills uh, literally right now so that I can actually survive this tournament. And it's always good fun anyway. It's not a particularly high ticket. I think you've got to enter with like 100 bucks and you're in. So it's a good time. I've played with them, with them before and uh, it's it's definitely a good time. Uh, there's also a carnivore dinner, as you should expect. And uh, this one, um, I'm told that they've kind of integrated a lot of things from past carnivore dinners to try to make this one better because you, you don't always get it right. So they're really... Uh, you know, taking that into account for this one, it's going to be, uh, you know, a, a space that is more conductive to a good time during a carnivore dinner and, and, the, and, and very good food. So uh, if you're into that, they have it. And uh, they also have uh, fun and games at Neonopolis, which is kind of like an arcade. And the, the time that I did go, I've gone twice, I think. And, and, and I can't remember which one it was. They had a, 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 an arcade day. And man, it was some of the funnest I've had with Bitcoiners because you actually get to spend some time together and, you know, just play. And there's a little pinball tournament and you get to run around with your friends and drink some beers and, and, and play some some arcade games. That was honestly one of my favorite uh, moments in, uh, in conference uh, events that I, that, that I can recall. 
So definitely recommend that. So that the event goes from the 6th to the 9th. The general ticket is $650. And if you use the code GALT10, that's G-A-L-T like Tom, 10, GALT10, you get 10% off. So that's a more than 50 bucks discount, that's $65 discount. Um, I don't know what else you can ask for, man. This is a good time. It's going to be in December uh, in Las Vegas. And uh, the hotels are actually pretty affordable. So if you go to uh, unconfiscatable.com, there's a little button up top that says Hotel D. Click that, and then that's a really good hotel, uh, very high-quality hotel that accepts Bitcoin, and it's very inexpensive, and there's still spots available. So you want to check that out. Anyway, without further ado, ladies and gentlemen, the man, the legend, international man of mystery who's traveled like 40 countries crazy tone vase Tom Vase is in the house. Welcome to the show. Thanks for joining. Um, how are you doing, Tom Vase? Yeah, great to just uh, a little bit late. How, did, did you guys, I'm just curious, did you just start this space or it's been going on for like an hour or two and this is just like me coming on? I'm just curious because I just logged on, but I wasn't sure no. if you guys get, get started this like hours ago. No, we, we always start the space about half an hour early just to get it warmed up and get some people on. Oh, gotcha. Uh, but yeah, we had it scheduled for this time, so you're good. A green candle. Nice to see you here. Yeah. Hey, how's it going, Tom? Long time, man. Good. Hope all is well. Yeah. Juan, I haven't actually physically seen you in a while either. It's been a while. Yeah, I know. I think, uh, I don't know, it might have been last uh, Unconfiscatable right before COVID. Maybe maybe a little bit after that at some point, but I, I definitely remember that. The last one was after COVID, um, the, the last year. So <laughs> I know it feels like COVID has been with us like forever, but uh, yeah, hope to see you at the, I hope to see you at the next one. It's coming up in December. That's right. Um, confiscatable. What is it? The third one that's coming up? Fourth, actually. Fourth. That's fantastic. And that's in uh, in Las Vegas again in in, in December. Yep. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I, I'm I'm excited. I'm definitely. I think we're 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 plotting our our way there with Bitcoin news. We've been we've been talking about it. And uh, I mean, this is a great show. I've done a lot of interviews at, at that at that event before. I interviewed Adam back there, uh, I think, in the twenty twenty one. And uh, for the Maxis out there, this is a great conference. Very fun. Las Vegas is a great time. And uh, you know, last time we had to stop doing conferences for two years, right? And 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 things really changed, and it was kind of kind of a weird time. But now it's back, and, and Vegas is probably back now. So uh, you guys might want to check that out. Um, all right, so let's uh, let's get into some of the big news here, like the XRP and Ripple. This is obviously the the breaking story of the week. Ripple is doing a victory dance, at least in the in, in the public press. The reports that we're hearing is that well, tokens aren't inherently securities. You know, they aren't by default securities. The only securities are when the, the tokens are sold to accredited investors, the ones that actually 
allegedly have the wealth and the competence and the investment experience to understand what they're buying. They're the ones that are that should be protected is what I'm reading from this story. And everybody else can, you know, they're plebs. They're buying secondary market tokens. They're not that important in the ruling. What is your, uh, let's say, off the top take on this on this uh, ruling tone? Uh, the markets, the crypto markets love it, but I'm starting to suspect it's a final exit pump, at least for Ripple. Man, have you done one of these shows with uh, some of the lawyers that have been explaining this, especially like a Joe Calasari or something, or not really? No, we're just starting to cover the news. At least I, I'm, I'm just starting to cover this story now, but I know you guys just did the show and uh, I can't wait to, to catch up on it. Yeah, so I, I really want to bring that law show back, the, the YouTube law show that we had. And uh, I am... See, it's hard to be on the side of the SEC, you know, being like you, you know, that I'm a pretty much a free market guy. Um, I hate calling myself a libertarian because I think most of those people are just insane. Uh, I'm just, you know, a free market capitalist, basically. And it's really hard to be on the side of the SEC here. But um, I, from day one uh, of Ripple, and I've been in this space for quite a while, same as you, I think you and I. Uh, we're writing about, you know, Bitcoin around the same time back in Coin Telegraph, as far back as 2014, even I think, uh, 2014. Yeah, it was 2014 when I started writing about uh, Bitcoin and Coin Telegraph, and you were you were there as well around that time. And yep. even back in those days, uh, we all know that Ripple is uh, insane, right? It has, um, it has nothing to do with cryptocurrency. There is nothing crypto about it. There's nothing decentralized about it. And I never understood why it was even on the coin market cap, you know, list. So it was always just weird. And yet all of these crypto people somehow are praying for Ripple. This is just like a weird thing. And I've been arguing with a lot of them for years. And they seem to be completely on the side of the government. They think that Ripple is going to be the currency of the World Economic Forum. They think this is great. They think Ripple is going to be the backbone of the traditional financial system. And the only reason why they actually want Ripple to succeed is because they're holding a bunch of Ripple and they think they're going to get rich. There is really no other reason for anyone to support Ripple other than I'm holding a bag of Ripple. This is really absolutely no different than JP Morgan stock. I've never seen um, so many people be fans of JP Morgan stock, but this is completely no different than that. Okay. So uh, when it comes to this ruling, I think the SEC got its ass handed to them uh, completely. Uh, This is a total loss for the SEC. It's actually an embarrassment uh, for the SEC. Um, Yes. They won that motion that the initial sale, the very initial sale of ripple to the sophisticated investor was the sale of a security that they didn't properly disclose. Okay, great. Now, all of these people that bought into that initial Ripple token sale have already sold this token at a massive profits. And there is absolutely no victims whatsoever, like none. Meanwhile, the secondary markets, all of the idiots that bought Ripple at like $3, you know, these people are like, no, that wasn't the security sale. So um, it is completely crazy, completely crazy. Now, the judge also said in that statement that Ripple itself, Ripple, the 
the token is not inherently a security the way they said, well, um, oranges are not really are not a security, but um, selling oranges can be a security, which is what the hobby test was all about. It was about, you know, selling futures contracts on oranges, basically, uh, down in Florida. Uh, and I disagree with that. Not only do I disagree with that statement in the case of Ripple, um, as we discussed with the lawyers, it was unnecessary for the judge to say that. Like, there was no reason whatsoever. Uh, like, she could have still had the same ruling. She could have said the initial $700 million sale was a sale of security contracts. The secondary sale was not a sale of security contracts. And that third part, which is, you know, giving Ripple out to certain key people like employees and promoters, is not a security, but yet the SEC had come out with guidance like three years ago saying that airdrops are securities. And it makes sense why airdrops would also be securities. Like, for example, if I create a tone-based token and I hand it out to Bitcoin News and other prominent people for free, and they're friends of mine, and they're important people and say, hey, I'm going to hand you this token. Right now, it's worth nothing. You're going to have a huge amount. And all we got to do is promote it and pump it. And then all you guys will get to sell this token that was originally worth nothing to all these people that are going to buy it from you for something. And then you'll get rich. And since I hold the majority of the tokens as the creator of the tone base token, I will also get rich. And the only people that are going to end up holding the bag are the idiots that we promoted to and sell to, which is like our follower base. So because of this, and this is obvious. So because of this, the SEC has come out and says, if you do an airdrop, um, it can be a security if it's the way I just described. And most of them happen to be the way I just described. So the SEC also lost on that count against Ripple. So, I think this was disastrous for the SEC. Uh, now, going back to the part that they won. Now, obviously, the SEC is going to appeal. Uh, they're going to say that the judge was wrong and uh, that that second part of secondary sales uh, was also a security. But I don't know how the hell they're going to overturn the judge's statement that Ripple itself is not a security. That one's going to be a hard one. And like I said, the judge didn't have to say that. All the judge had to do was leave it alone. Uh, she could have like just said nothing. She could have said, okay, you win on the first count, you lose on the second count, you lose on the third count. That statement that every headline had said, Ripple is not a security, that statement was just unnecessary to the case, and the judge went like out of her way to say that. I don't know why. Uh, I really don't know why. We can suspect and all this other stuff, but we don't know why. So now, last thing, so now the SEC is going to appeal. They're going to try to get that second thing overturned. I don't think that as many people care about that third one because that's a small amount. But that second one, right, the sale of Ripple tokens on uh, basically crypto exchanges uh, that was being sold by Ripple, the company, uh, to all these people on exchanges, uh, apparently that wasn't a security, which uh, that wasn't a sale of a security contract, which to me is a, little, which to me is a big L for the SEC. Now, the SEC can try to go after and discourage, like, like, like we want Ripple to repay the entire $700 million uh, of the initial sale. 
And I, in my opinion, that's going to be incredibly hard for the SEC for two reasons. One, no one is actually complaining about it because everyone that bought into Ripple back then bought Ripple at like a fraction of a penny, and none of them lost money. So you have no victims here. All of these VCs got out early. Uh, all of these sophisticated investors are like, okay, they sold, secu- they sold us an illegal security and we all made money on it. So, uh, no, we, we don't want to file we, we don't want to file a case, right? So now the SEC is going to say, well, we're going to still protect these, not little guys, we're still going to protect these big guys and we're going to go after Ripple for $700 million. Now, Ripple, the company, and by the way, the Ripple people hated when I conflate Ripple, the token, which is XRP, and Ripple, the company, which is Ripple Labs. Uh, they are one and the same. I love poking them on this. Um, I call Ripple the token. Uh, I, I, I call XRP the token Ripple because it's all Ripple. Like it's like Apple stock and Apple the company. It's all Apple. Like we say, hey, did you invest in Apple? Uh, and we mean Apple stock, right? It's no different with Ripple. Like did you invest in Ripple? Yeah, of course. I bought a shit ton of the token back. Um, it's all the same thing. It's uh, uh, all those tokens were created. And Jeb McCaleb uh, wasn't even part of the case. That guy should be in prison forever. Uh, anyway, I'm not going to get into that. So now if the SEC tries to go after the 700 million, sure, uh, because okay. of the SEC only winning that initial one, um, it means that uh, all of those people that bought in Ripple early, uh, they all cashed out on a profit. And now the, in order for the SEC to try and come after and do disgorgement, as they call it, on the $700 million dollars, uh, out of Ripple, the company, it's going to be tricky because, first of all, no one is complaining. No one actually lost money. So they can't just say, hey, we want the $700 million and then we're going to distribute it to the victims. But there were no victims, right? So what does the SEC do with the money? Do they just put it into like the fund there? Uh, oh, and Joe's here. Oh, that's awesome. Um, like, like, I don't understand how the SEC is going to be able to maybe joke and answer. I don't know how the SEC is going to justify trying to claw back the $700 million because there were literally no victims and no one's complaining. And where is that money going to go? Is it going to, like, what is the SEC going to do with it? They're going to turn it to Buddha Teresa all of a sudden? There's no victims to give that money back to. Uh, and um, if they're not able to, you know, prevent Ripple, the company, from selling any more tokens, Ripple, the company, easily has $700 million to give them, right? They can just go in the open market and sell $700 million worth of token, right? The, uh, the founders, uh, I believe the founders are not allowed to sell their tokens. Again, joking, correct me on that. But uh, they have to prevent, like, all of the founders from selling their tokens. Like, those tokens get locked up. Uh, Ripple, the company, uh, they have to prevent the Ripple, the company, from selling any more tokens. So it's like the worst-case scenario is that Ripple, the company, is not allowed to sell any more tokens. So, like, I don't know how much tokens Ripple, the company, still has. Probably, I don't know, uh, it was $100 billion or uh, I forgot the total number. I think it was $100 billion tokens. I think they still have, like, half that they haven't, you know, uh, scammed investors with, um, unqualified investors. And uh, I, even if they can't sell those, the number, the total number of Ripple tokens just goes down by half, right? So it's kind of like, the SEC just helped the, the XRP bag holders by preventing Ripple, the company, from selling any more tokens and devaluing the current tokens in circulation. So I'm not surprised uh, Ripple, the token, went up in value. Uh, 
because a ripple, the company may not be able, it, it's kind of like, you know, it's like, Oh, no more Bitcoin uh, being mined. So that last, uh, uh, and, and this isn't mine, right? So it's like, okay, there'll be a lot 500, uh, 50 billion less tokens out in the world going forward uh, because they're not allowed to put any more in circulation. Now you would think that hurts the company uh, maybe, but if the company is holding on to their own tokens uh, in a way, the ones that have, they have already created and those tokens skyrocket in value because of, stupid speculators uh i mean the token can go up it absolutely can and again it's kind of crazy because all of these xrp token holders like they all they're just bag holders of the token because they think that ripple the token is going to be the backbone of the future financial system controlled by the economic forum so anyone that actually is for ripple the token they want this centralized system like basically uh, it is like in that show, Mr. Robot, even though I didn't watch it that far because I really got bored with that show. Uh, but it's kind of like the same thing. We're going to have a digital currency for the world, and these people think it's going to be Ripple, uh, which is interesting. Uh, and also, like, the SEC and the U.S. government seems to hate Ripple the token, but the World Economic Forum loves Ripple the company and Ripple the token. It's uh, it's just a weird dynamic. Uh, but, yeah, I, yeah. I, I, yeah, I, I don't know if you guys have any more comments, but like, like I really don't yeah, know no, what I mean, to say it, about it. It's fascinating. So, so quick question, uh, just to clarify. So Ripple can't sell the supply that they've produced that, that they haven't uh, that they haven't sold yet? Uh, so I'm not sure about that. This is where Joe can chime in. Uh, I believe the SEC, uh, uh, yeah, that's the weird part, right? Because that second part of the case stated that, well, Ripple selling Ripple the token on a secondary market is not really a security. So they probably are able to sell more of that token on the op on these unlicensed exchanges. And Coinbase is probably going to relist Ripple the token and they'll be able to sell it there. Uh, but I think there are still criminal charges, uh, not criminal, but some kind of charges against the two founders so they can't sell their personal stash like if, they, if there's any difference between the two. Right. Yeah, I think the... the the big impression that I get from this event is the SEC is here to protect Wall Street and accredited investors and the top of the food chain, the, the cream of the crop, the 1%. That's who they're really here to protect. The people that are not accredited, that are buying secondary, that are the exit liquidity probably in this pump, those people are not that important on the on the. No, the... no, 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 let me, let me correct you there. No, no, that's what the judge did, right? The SEC wanted to protect that little investor, but the judge said no. Amazing. That's amazing. The judge disagreed with the SEC that all of those, uh, you know, bag holders that, were, that could have been 12 years old because there's no KYC and these unlicensed exchanges, those people, that sale was not breaking security laws. <laughs> ah. Yeah, and I'm just I'm I I love the irony of these these uh, these kind of events because it just shatters so many narratives. Um, now let, let's talk about the second part of the the analysis here because some of the reports are that this lawsuit is nevertheless a big L for Ripple, even if they're pretending otherwise, and that the company might not not actually survive this ruling. Um, maybe you can tell us a little bit about why that's being reported and. You know, because if if Ripple, the company, goes down with the ship here, despite despite the ruling being positive for pretty much every poop coin, crap coin up there, um, 
you know, and pumping their stock, right? Pumping their coin. Uh, you know, if, if the company goes down, the token will go down anyway, which would actually prove the thesis that it's security. I agree. Right. Well, again, like the only way, and uh, Joe is listening in. Joe, I would love for you to chime in. Um, so the only way is if, well, the, first of all, the SEC is going to try to appeal. Uh, and uh, I, I don't, in my opinion, they're probably not going to be successful, but they're going to try to appeal that uh the, the, the two parts that they lost. Uh, and if the SEC is able to, you know, go after Ripple, the company, for $700 million, and they're able to prevent Ripple, the company, from selling more tokens, and they're able to prevent the founders from selling their personal billion-dollar wealth in the tokens, then Ripple, the company, may not have $700 million to pay back the SEC. It's uh, not $700 million, how- million Tony. It's not seven. It's they did seven hundred million, seven hundred twenty-eight million in sales, and I think the actual profits are something like two point five billion. So disgorgement would be any ill-gotten gains. So it's the original sale plus any profits. So I think it's closer to two point eight, two point seven, somewhere there. Profits by Ripple the company. Correct, sir. Okay, but here's the thing, right? But since there were no victims. Um, how is the SEC going to be able to, like, you know, no, there are like, where's that money going to go? There are victims. The victims, ironically, were the institution in, in the eyes of the SEC. And don't don't shoot me. I'm just giving you the SEC's narrative. They're, <laughs> they're, they're, they're the victims, ironically, are not retail who bought through programmatic sales because Judge Torres found that retail didn't know they were buying from uh, Ripple, the company, and the blind order books through the programmatic sales. The victims in this case according to the SEC, would be the institutional investors who purchased it early on and had that expectation of profit based on the documents that were given to them. So effectively, they purchased unregistered securities. So those right. are, those are right. identifiable. No, but, but they all pretty much made money, right? So when you say victims, right, according to the SEC, you're a victim. It's kind of like, hey, you're a victim because some guy handed you a $100 bill and that was Correct. an illegal handover of 100 bucks. So where's the money going to go if the SEC yeah. is able to go after the $2 billion? So in the event that victims are not truly identifiable or viable, okay, as repayment, the money goes back to Treasury. So the government keeps it? Yes, sir. <laughs> right. So, okay, so, so what are – so because – okay, so Joe, I got a question for you. So because Torres uh, decided that those secondary sales of the token were not breaking security laws, um, can't Ripple sell $2 billion worth of tokens from their company uh, treasury uh, and pay the $2 billion? Yeah, there would be nothing that prevents it. So let me just tell you one, one thing. So the judge's ruling is remarkable, not just merely for the – I mean, if it holds up, right? And again, don't I really caution the folks that are that – are, confident that this is just you know bulletproof and going to necessarily hold up on appeal because cases frequently you know i've had many cases where we've lost and then won and then we've won and then lost on appeal like that's the process when you have a new area of law and i think the interesting most interesting aspect of the judge's opinion is that a token in and of itself is not in fact an investment contract if that stands then basically you're opening the door to uh, effectively uh, unrestricted uh, shitcoining and altcoining for the foreseeable future. Because all that right, needs so to happen... I, I, I might create a tone-based token. 
on the liquid yeah, I mean, side everybody, should, fork, create, I'm not everybody should create a token then because not legal advice but the, the the reason why is because right now unlike the original or early ico days you know the lawyers in the space uh if we when when you're counseling a client about launching something make it very clear that you know at the early days when you're giving your preferred access just use reg d um, use accredited investors only sell it to the you know the guys that have extreme clout the a16z's the you know the the folk, folks that are you know very sophisticated that you know you're going to have agreements with them and you're going to be legally compliant to sell it but then once you get to the secondary market you know it's fair game anybody can buy it you can't have any any additional liability so basically all if you're a token launcher or an nft launcher or any of these project launchers all you have to really be concerned about is those initial sales because judge torres's rationale is that a token in itself cannot be a security that 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 I mean, i'm just telling you like you know whether you like it hate it the reality is if that stands and that becomes the rule of the law i expect two things to happen number one uh, i expect all coins to explode like across the board you'll see 10 10x the amount of altcoins in the space and number two i think you'll see the sec and gensler change their tune for years now gensler had said i have all the regulatory authority i need we can pursue these claims in court. We don't need a new uh, piece of legislation from Congress. If it becomes the case that, no, we really can't regulate at all the secondary market per Judge Torres and other courts rulings, then they have to go to Congress and they have to say, we need ability. We need new enforcement ability. You need to pass some legislation. Wow. This is fantastically, this is just incredible. Um, what, do you, what do you guys make of, I don't, I'm, I'm, just, I'm just in shock at the situation. I think we're going to see, you know, I've, I've had this thesis for a while that basically everybody was going to be creating crap coins for the next three or four generations. Because, again, like this looks to me like a, like a kind of corporate attack of sorts, right? Like the SEC is supposed to be protecting Wall Street, is supposed to be protecting investors, but Ripple's allegedly uh, set up as the kind of World Economic Forum coin um, maybe we should get into a little bit of speculation about what could be behind this. And if this stands, you know, we're going to see three or four generations or two generations of altcoins ripping through the market and and basically scamming people. Right. Um, I mean, well, I, the- you know, we've seen 10 years of this already and it just people love Ponzi schemes. They just keep playing pon- the Ponzi game. So well, um, here's, yeah, the, here's the, the, the frustrating yeah, part okay. of this. OK. And I, and I truly believe, I try to give people the benefit of the doubt always, right? And I truly believe the judge uh, made a critical error and did not understand how this market works. I mean, her rationale is that when people go on these exchanges, buy the XRP token, that they have no idea, no understanding at all that they're actually uh, engaging in uh, a contract with the underlying issuer, which is Ripple. They, that they can't possibly see that because they don't even know who they're buying from. That seems to fly in the face of all I've ever understood from the XRP army who constantly brag about how Ripple enters into all these contracts with agree- and agreements with you know, governments and banks and that they're working actively to promote the token. So it just seems to not even match re- the, the economic reality of what people do when they buy XRP. But putting that all aside, okay, the judge makes the most bizarre ruling because she says, Secondary market sales, the programmatic sales, those are not investment contracts, right? But then she explicitly includes in the order a footnote, which you can all all go and read, and says, this court is declining to make any ruling regarding whether sales of XRP in the secondary market constitute investment contracts. Those two things are completely inconsistent. 
You cannot say in the same opinion that we're not finding that the secondary sales of XRP, the programmatic sales, can't say those aren't investment contracts, and then also say, have it both ways and say, but I'm not making a ruling about the secondary market sales. One of those things is wrong. Either the judge just didn't get it and made a big mistake, or she you know, did not realize the sweeping nature of what she was effectively ruling. Right. So, and, and yes, it's good to uh, give people the benefit of the doubt. And I think that's uh, the starting position from any kind of good sense conversation and debate and, and, and let's say exploration of the truth, which hopefully this is, that's what's going on with this court case. But let's take a more cynical approach for a second and look at this as, you know, a show trial, right? Who, who is benefiting from this, right? I mean, obviously, the crypto market is benefiting from this. Um, the SEC is has a black eye here. What does this mean for for Gary Gensler? Uh, if this stands, how does how do you guys see this playing out? Let's say that the appeal fails and uh, crypto is allowed to basically <laughs> dump on retail as much as they want. I, I pers- I really think Gary Gensler is gone. Like there were those rumors a couple like a week or two ago that Gary Gensler submitted his resignation. Now, I, I, I think because of this ruling, he probably will. Uh, I don't think Gary Gensler wants – I mean, he's going to try to appeal if he's still with the SEC. Um, like, if I was Gary Gensler, I would, like uh, – if that ruling stands, uh, I would not want to be any – I wouldn't want to be Gary Gensler uh, if everyone's creating tokens. Now, having said that, well, I want to go back to something else you said. Now, the easy money in anyone and everyone creating a token has already been made. So even if this stands and what like the, the crazy world of a billion tokens, because remember, there will be a billion tokens, right? Because we have 7 billion people. Uh, every single person will be able to create their own token. Uh, and then every person can create multiple tokens. Uh, Richard Hart's already taken advantage of this. So is Jeb McCaleb and many others, uh, Dan Larimer. And every single company will have its own token as well, right? So... We are talking uh, like altogether, this is upwards of 20, 30 billion, but altogether we can imagine a world of a billion tokens. Uh, oh, very few are actually gonna go anywhere. Like an overabundance of something is gonna basically make this market look like a laughing stock. I did always envision this world. I always envisioned the world of a billion tokens. I just thought that this world would come uh, on the back end of this decade when the United States just breaks up and falls apart and there isn't a global regulator like the SEC, it just wouldn't exist. So I always envisioned the world of a billion tokens. I just thought it would come after the U.S. splits into multiple countries. Right. And maybe maybe we're going through that slow collapse, right? I think there's plenty of arguments to be made there. And, it, and it's not necessarily a bad thing, right? Because the, the this empire of, you know, this house of cards is very large and very heavy. Right. But, and, um, and the, right. And the thing is that when you have an overabundance of tokens, like they're all going to be terrible. Like no one's going to know which is good or which is bad. So, uh, and uh, like I said, the easy money has been made. Like there's not another Elon Musk pumping another doge, right? Like, like, like people only get to such status. Like there's only one Andreessen Horowitz and he's already burned his bridge with a couple of tokens. Uh, so it's going to be very, very hard to find these prominent people. Like there's not going to be another Vitalik. There's not going to be another Ethereum. So 
yes, there's going to be a billion tokens, but none of them are going to reach the kind of level that Ethereum has or Solana has, right? So it's like, yes, you're increasing the number of tokens, but you're significantly lowering um, the effect or the network effect that any single token is going to have. So it's not actually going to hurt Bitcoin at all. It's just annoying dealing with these people on Twitter. Yeah, it's definitely not going to hurt Bitcoin. I think, I mean, it, it, it's going to hurt people in general, right? Again, like like in Colombia, there's a lot of Ponzi schemes. People love Ponzi schemes. I've seen, you know, not, like my mother's generation go through multiple Ponzi schemes. My generation go through multiple Ponzi schemes. And there's always new people that are ignorant of the past. You know, it seems like most of the abuses in politics and propaganda are basically presenting a new version of reality to people that has already been defeated a million times in history. And um, so I'm not, I'm not so optimistic. I think, I think that without a kind of societal uh, coordination against pyramids and Ponzi schemes, we see 50 years of people getting burned to the point where we look back at as a graveyard of wealth uh, sacrificed to the gods of liberty, right? And, you know, we just we just look at it like we look at any other scam. Hopefully, you know, like just don't go outside at night, you know, that's with, uh, with a bunch of cash in your pocket. That's the equivalent of buying uh, a crypto. That's, that's, but it's going to take 20, 30 years. Um, and our children's children will have to have heard the stories of financial uh, crimes and, and, and robbery and, and, and all the money that's been lost and gained, too, because that's the thing. You know, some people make out like bandits and um, and that just keeps the cycle going. So um, I don't know. I hope you're right. I hope you're right on that. So so what's the next step here? So there's uh, there's going to be an appeal on both sides. Um and I guess we'll, well see, we, we we'll don't see know, what happens. We don't know that because right now it's in the locatory, which means that the judge has to grant leave to appeal. It may go to trial first. There's a slim chance of that because keep in mind, as Tone alluded to earlier, Garlinghouse and Larson have to stand trial for their involvement and in whether they knowingly violated securities laws. Okay, so the show goes on. That's interesting. Yeah, it, um, or the judge may say, listen, I want these issues of scrutinies on appeal first. Right. Okay. Yeah, so, so I guess we'll, so, so is ahead. there is there a chance that while this is a huge win for Ripple the token and all future tokens, future and past tokens, while at the same time this takes down Ripple the company, hence it takes down Ripple the token. This would be like the mother of all ironies. Yeah, I, I don't really see a scenario where it takes down Ripple the company. I don't really see that to be viable because my understanding from a just a balance sheet perspective, they can pay, you know, a couple billion dollar fine. Um, so I, I don't really see that scenario playing out. Man, that yeah, would be and, and are there criminal charges against Garlinghouse and no. Larson or is it more civil? It's all civil. It's all civil. Okay. So they'll weasel out of it. Okay. But the bigger question, guys, is is the the Coinbase and the Binance suit. Because keep in mind that in the Coinbase and Binance suit, the SEC has taken the position that those exchanges 
you cannot operate lawfully in the United States without proper reg regulation. So, you know, regardless of whether the tokens, and, I, and I've said this for years, like I said, if you, if you really want to get control of the, the space, you need to go after the on-ramps and off-ramps. And if these changes cannot operate, who cares whether, you know, some, some code is or is not an investment contract. The real key thing is like, how does retail pour their money into it? And the exchanges being able to set up and operate in the United States is a lot, what was what allows a lot of these things to perpetuate. Yeah, well, with the Coinbase case against the SEC, that one is going to be absolutely fascinating because uh, the SEC is taking this position that them allowing a company to go public has nothing to do with their underlying business is fraudulent or not. And what makes it really interesting in this particular case where the underlying business isn't like, you know, we're selling hamburgers. The underlying business is actually in insecurities, which is something the SEC should understand. So I, I think that case is going to be even a bigger clown show than the XRP case. Well, keep in mind, they haven't said in their case that the underlying business as a whole is uh, not viable. For example, right, Coinbase started out only with a handful of tokens, um, which, you know, at the, in the early days, it was Bitcoin and later Litecoin and, and, and Ethereum. But the Coinbase suit is that when they expanded to include a whole bunch of other altcoins, that that effectively turned them into an unregistered securities exchange. And that's their theory, right? So if you're going to steel man the other side, number one, the SEC says approval of an S1 does not condone or authorize the underlying business activities. And actually, if you read um, the disclosure documents that were filed, Coinbase itself acknowledges, and the SEC puts this in their complaint, that approval of the S1, this is Coinbase's own words when they're telling the prospective investors, approval of the S1 does not mean approval of the underlying business. And they also write in their documents filed with the SEC that it's, it's possible that the SEC could uh, change their view on cryptocurrencies and that investors should be aware of when they're buying Coinbase stock. So this was all well known and documented prior to ever being listed on a public exchange that this was a risk. It's very, to me, it seems quite rich to complain by, by Coinbase when they had to disclose to potential investors that this, this exact thing could happen, right? Like, how can you complain about something you knew and anticipated and informed your investors about? But putting all that aside, right, like the approval process for the, the S1 is really just, do you have proper disclosures? It's not in any way a validation or ratification of the underlying business. This is how cannabis stocks get listed on public uh, you know, exchanges. All right. Um, and let's talk about Binance a little bit because there's some weird action in the Binance side of things. Um, Tether is de-pegging against the USD pair on Binance. Are you guys, I don't know if you noticed this tone, uh, but... Uh, you that. What... that makes no sense to me whatsoever. Like, uh, there's enough people that use this kind of stuff on these exchanges. Like, why can't you just go and buy Tether at a 15 cent discount on the dollar, move it to like a Kraken and sell it at at cost or just you know uh, go to dubai they love tether there you can just like with one phone call there'll be three guys at your house with suitcases full of cash ready to buy your uh, you know ready, ready ready to buy tether you just move it onto another you know like into your own personal wallet like this is so weird to me i don't get it yeah it's very strange so this is on the binance us 
exchange it appears yeah the reason and then, the reason that's occurring is because they they sh- they've shut off the on ramps for USD into Binance US so you can't get cash into the exchange you can withdraw all your crypto you can deposit various assets but you've effectively cut the inbound liquidity like somewhere in the range of 90%. So that's why everything on the platform is selling at sharp discounts because new cash cannot flow in. And it's a good sort of test case, like what would happen if, if USD rails were completely closed off because what you tend to see is that every asset really sells at a discount, including pegged USD assets. And it's a very simple reason because there's no liquidity to absorb and are about the difference. And Joe, and I'm assuming they're not allowing you to withdraw the tether into your own, no, you, you know, to hold your own keys of the you tether. You can withdraw it. I've experimented with clients. Like you can, you can absolutely withdraw the tether. The pro- but, the, but that's not the issue. The issue is how do you arb out the difference, right? How do you get the? Why is the peg not at one? And the real, real reason why is because there's no new inbound liquidity. If you were to deposit, for example, Bitcoin into Binance US, which you can do, and I've had clients do it recently, you deposit it and you get a, your Bitcoin equivalent of the USD, the tether is like the, right. Is lower, right? So you're, you're, you're not getting any gain because all of the crypto across the board in that exchange is at a discount. So you can't arb out the difference without inbound liquidity in the form of dollars. Okay, but why can't you just deposit Bitcoin by this cheap, I guess? Uh, yeah, so let's and... just do the math. Yeah, because okay. you're going to be so... buying cheap Tether, right? But, but if you're holding Tether on Binance US, you have to be an idiot to sell that Tether at 15 cents on the dollar. You just withdraw the Tether and t- take it to a different exchange. Yes, correct. If you, That's absolutely right. And, and by the way, that is why they've got a problem, right? Like, that's why Tether keeps getting withdrawn from that particular exchange. There's no buy side liquidity to absorb it and mop it up, and you keep having this discount. Oh, great. Oh my so, God. This is, this is a, so, this is a use case for Bitcoin. Like, this is why eventually all of these shitcoin casinos are going to just use Bitcoin as their medium of exchange. So, again, this is what will make Bitcoin go up. Well, this is hilarious. I, I'm just looking at the Bitcoin USDT chart on Binance US, and it had a, a wick up to $140,000, $137,000. Um, so the liquidity is definitely, you know, shaky there. It's probably drying up. But, I mean, these kind of wicks are almost prophetic, you know. Um, <laughs> I mean, we'll I, 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 wouldn't, I wouldn't really trust those wicks. So there's two, two things can be happening there, and you have to rule them both out. One is it's just a straight up data error and there wasn't an actual trade at that price. And the other thing you need to rule out that the trade that took place at that price wasn't for like 50 cents, right? Because either one of those will create that data spike and there wasn't anything significant that took place, right? But it but just it, creates this weird spike. Yeah, I mean, assuming it's not a data error, it would mean that the, 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 the books... The, the sell order books were so thin that a 50 cent buy order threw it up to 140,000, right? Unless they mess with the, with the ordering of the, of the sell orders, right? Right. Um, and uh, usually whenever there's spikes like that, uh, there, it's usually, there, there was no material transfer of value. However, there have been instances where the exact opposite was true, like in the case of Mount Gox, 
where the price spiked from or spiked down from $17 down to 10 cents. And at that 10 cents, Mount Gox was basically scammed for like 100,000 Bitcoin, right? So right. There was, this was the malicious, malicious actor. So uh, this is where you don't know because they're, again, they're like black boxes on these exchanges. And uh, like we, some of us watched, uh, not in real time because I wasn't around in 2010, but in hindsight, one guy just happens to be streaming his trading platform. And he literally had like the code running in the background and everything. And like, he didn't even realize it at first, but he live recorded uh, like a $250,000 Bitcoin transaction on Mount Gox at 10 cents when the real price was, you know, in the $17, $18 range. And then you look back at it. I was like, oh, that's when they got hacked. Right. Yeah, this is this is the kind of behavior that you see in an exchange when it's collapsing, right? You see pairs trading off price compared to other exchanges. You see ridiculous wicks which signals, you know, uh, exiting liquidity. Um, but uh, yeah, okay. So, but but what I didn't understand yet is, and this is interesting, right? Why can't I just deposit a Bitcoin, buy, you know, a bunch of USDT against Tether? I mean, the price of BTC versus Tether in I'll tell you because, like Joe said, if you do that, you're gonna buy Tether at an at a fifteen percent discount. But no, like I'm looking at the BTC versus USDT yeah, yeah, price, so, so. and it's thirty thousand three hundred and eighty four, which is the exact same price as Bitmax, as probably Bitstamp. So there's no discount in the BTC yeah, hold, versus USDT. Hold, hold on. So so the issue is not purchasing the 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 Bitcoin. Right. Here, here's the, just go through the example. Okay, here here's what you're saying. So right now. On, on Binance US, if you go and you buy, uh, if, you, if you deposit a Bitcoin, which number one, you're taking the risk of putting your Bitcoin in an exchange that is even for a mom momentary uh, point of time is, is a little shaky, right? So you're going to deposit that Bitcoin and you're going to be able to sell it for $30,385 worth of Tether, okay? Now, if you were to, you have that Tether right there, okay? And at that point, in dollars on the exchange, you're only going to get 75 cents on the dollar for your tether, okay, for, for that $30,000 in tether. Now, you can withdraw the tether, okay, but you're not really making any gains there, right? If you, if you bought a Bitcoin into, into Binance US, got 30385 and then you export 30385 of tether, what are you making, like $10, to another exchange, there's no real ARB there. The ARB is between the USD and the USD pair. So the only way to get take advantage of that to purchase Tether on the discount is to get dollars into the exchange, not Bitcoin. Yeah, okay, I get it, I get it. So yeah, you can buy Tether in there, but it's gonna be spot global price. The liquidity issue is on the USD side of, of the pair. And so this the, people are, are, are tweeting this out as if it's uh, a sign of the collapse of Tether, but it's actually it's actually evidence of the, let's say, the issues with the dollar, right? Because this exchange is getting shot off and you can't get you can't get dollars into the exchange. Yeah. Right? And then just to, I think it was last week or the week before Bitcoin, Bitcoin was uh, trading at a substantial discount on Binance US. Right. So that was the time for the art. And I know some folks uh, whose name shall uh, remain nameless that took advantage of that discount. There was ways to do it back then, but you really need the the crypto assets, not the, 
the Tether USD pair to trade at the discount. If that happens, there's a, there's a substantial opportunity. I think it was like a 10% discount on Bitcoin last, last week. So that, that was the moment you, you had. Okay. And um, what is, you know, are, are there any implications from this XRP case that are applicable now to, let's say, the Binance US case? And maybe we can kind of brush over. Oh, yeah. I think this helps the BNB token a lot. Well, I mean, it helps every token, right? If the judges, if the judge's ruling is correct, which, again, big if, I don't think it's by any means settled. Um, but if it is correct, then that means that the premise of Coinbase is the SEC suit against Binance and Coinbase that, you know, these things are operating unregistered securities markets. It, it falls apart. How can you have an unregistered securities market when the secondary market is effectively not an investment contract? This is why I really think, guys, that, that when the judge includes that footnote, she's like, oh, well, I really don't think these sales were investment contracts, but I'm not well, willing to put forward such a sweeping order here. I, I, you know, judges, one thing they care about is getting slapped on appeal and reversed because it makes them look silly, right? The judges don't like to, that's probably the only thing they care about. They don't like to look silly and get reversed by their, their effective you know, superiors because many judges want to move up in the ranks and become you know, appellate court judges or potentially have dreams of being on like the Supreme Court. Um, and even if they don't want to do that, they don't want to be looked at as the judge that got it wrong, right? Just it, it's out there forever. So I, I, I think the judge includes that footnote that I'm not making any ruling in the secondary market because she's just like, listen, I don't want I don't want people to jump to conclusions. But but in our day and age, what do people do? They jump to conclusions. Right, right. Okay, so maybe this is as an, an exit pump, a liquidity like a liquidity pump, you know, because there's still a lot of issues to be resolved in the case. You know, there's going to be appeals on both sides. It seems like XRP can sell their tokens still. So the price is you know, it's going up based on the, you know, the, the media narrative that this is a, a great uh, vindication of crypto and that tokens aren't securities in and of themselves. But it will be hilarious if Ripple, the company, has to sell $2 billion worth of tokens to pay the SEC fine, hence crashing down the price of the XRP token. Yeah, exactly. And then the U.S. government gets all that money, right? Which is... Um, right. And then the SEC can go after the Ripple, the company, for like hurting their investors on purpose, by, but they're not really investors. So this is... Uh, no, no, this is going to be... Uh, this is going to be a clown show to come because, like Joe said, either this thing is going to trial or this thing is going to appeals. Uh, if it's a trial, it's a jury trial. So that would be very interesting. There's, here's the thing. This is a war, right? And this this became open season with the FTX collapse. And I'll just briefly share because I got to jump. But um, last year, okay, before and even the year before, before the FTX collapse and SBF was exposed, um, there was hope that there was going to be a crypto bill that was passed and that would resolve a lot of these issues. And that's what held the regulators like the SEC and the CFTC at bay. And then when it all blew up last year with SBF, um, and people were exposed and a lot of the pro crypto uh, legislators had egg on their face because they took money from SBF. They basically said, OK, take the gloves off. You guys file whatever litigation you have. And also, you know, engage in the so-called Operation Choke Point 2.0, which, you know, is coordinated efforts to maintain to uh, undermine the banking rails 
to these companies. And I've had clients and customers that have had, you know, their accounts shut off seemingly at will in this war, right? Now, one of two things will happen. Either the SEC, after this latest ruling, is going to wave the white flag, okay, and just say, we've got to change, we've got to pivot, we've got to take a different course here. Or you could see escalation. And in my mind, I think people are very much discounting uh, the, the potential for escalation. Let me explain what that can look like. If the White House and other policymakers in a coordinated effort were trying to truly undermine this space, they can ramp up that effort in the soft powers they have, eliminating the banking rails. I mean, there's already reported accounts of many crypto companies having you know, their wire transfer access and ACH rails turned off. That can, that can really, really ramp up now if the SEC feels like they're under pressure now uh, to control this market. Because uh, if you go on crypto Twitter or Bitcoin Twitter, there's, there's a lot of uh, you know, mixed opinions. But crypto Twitter was mostly jubilant over this ruling. And my guess is that the Biden administration and the Elizabeth Warren crowds, they want to send a clear message. You think that that's all we can do? You know, think again. And there will be far more draconian efforts that are coming in the next few months. I, you know, no guarantees, but I do not expect them to back down. I expect escalation and they will use other tools in their measure, in their, in their ability to try to tamper down what's going on. Why do you think, why do you think uh, crypto is a threat to the Biden administration? Maybe Tony, you have some thoughts on this as well. Like, you know, is this uh, a given, you know, they're definitely, they're definitely positioning to try and regulate and control the market, but do they really want to destroy it? You know, can't they benefit from it? You know, don't they want CBDCs? Don't don't the World Economic Forum and 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 the, and, and all these sort of uh, let's say neo technocrats want uh, stable coins that they can fully control that are totally centralized? Uh, I just I don't understand what their attack plan is. You know, like why aren't they attacking Bitcoin? Or maybe is Bitcoin compromised here? Right, like like. Maybe Bitcoin is just too strong. And oh, it's Juan, like, Juan, you're, no, you're, 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 you're giving them too much credit. Like uh, you're they're not coordinated enough to uh, like, I, honestly, I think that like the government, especially the Biden administration, they don't they still don't understand this stuff. Like they wake up one day thinking what a huge what, how awesome it is to use like ripple, the technology, like the, the ripple thing to have your like full control of people's financial systems. And then the next morning they wake up and they're scared shitless that Bitcoin is going to take them down. Like, like it's a, it's a really day by day thing. And like Gary Gensler was it like, is just, he just started a few uh, like two years ago, right. As the head of the SEC. And I don't think he will be the head of the SEC next year. And if he is, he certainly won't be when the next administration shows up, assuming it's a different administration. Like they're just not coordinated enough to have a plan. Like what Elizabeth Warren wants from crypto is completely opposite versus Cynthia Loomis. Like they're not going to be on the same page. Like we're not even on the same page in these spaces. Like how do you expect the government to be on the same page? Right, right. So this political chaos, it's just uh, people, yeah, it's just power and chaos. And uh, I mean, I'm, I'm kind of enjoying it. It's definitely crazy. Uh, but uh, this is, you know, this is the kind of times well, we're in, you know, so. Well, like uh, basically, well, like, I know people think the World Economic Forum is like all powerful and they control this, but 
the World Economic Forum has had more shit blow up in their face than they've actually, you know, like done right. Like half the companies that the World Economic Forum has promoted, they have ended up taken down off their website, including FTX, right? Like FTX was the darling of the World Economic Forum. Now, where are they now? So clearly, even the World Economic Forum is not like doing well. Like, uh, like World Economics Forums, probably number one, uh politician that would have like if they had rankings like who's our favorite politician probably would have been uh, Josia Arden out of New Zealand and she's gone right like uh, their next one is probably Trudeau and I'm assuming he's going to be gone now they're going to stick them in unelected positions going forward but like the World Economic Forum is going to lose they will not win freedom always wins like we would I don't know all be Romans or Greeks right now if freedom didn't always win right like you you just can't control the population. So um, uh, they're, they're not going to win. And, uh, and they, they're trying, uh, but they're not going to win. Yeah, and, and I tend to agree with that. Like freedom is kind of like a virus in a, in a good way, right? It's, a, it's a, an immune system response to tyranny. However, what we're seeing in this particular version, like in this particular manifestation of freedom is the freedom to launch Ponzi schemes. And again, like I'm, 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 I'm a libertarian at the end of the day. Like I don't, you know, I kind of do want to see people learn through experience, but I also see how, how much damage that can do because people are so terribly uneducated and ignorant in, in terms of finance. You know, there's no education, there's no financial literacy in schools. No financial literacy in universities, even in many cases, even, even if you study economics, you end up completely ignorant of economics. Uh, they don't really teach you risk management. They don't teach you wealth management. They don't teach you the basics of how to, you know, why you should save and what you should save in. Uh, so people are just, you know, in this, in this uh, rapid uh, river of, of marketing fluff you know, right. throwing money at whatever they can or trying to, to, to save in currencies that are devaluing. Um, right. So maybe, maybe we can talk a little bit about that because, you know, in this world of, of freedom where, let's say, tokens are not inherently securities and therefore everybody gets their own token, you know, you get a token and you get a token and you get a token. Um, how do people that are interested in finance and that want to make some money and want to play with money Maybe not not necessarily being traders, but what what do you think, Tom Vase? Let's pivot a little bit from from law. What do you think is the let's say number one and number two principles of of money and money management and wealth management that people really need to be aware of? You know, we have like four hundred people listening. Uh, what should they What should they know? Well, the most look the, the the hardest thing to do is to hold on to your wealth and hold on to your money. Okay, we it's the hardest thing to do. Every, at the moment you have any kind of money, everyone wants a piece of your money, right? Um, whether they want to let, borrow it from you to start a business for whatever reason, the hardest thing to do is to hold on to your money. And uh, this world of a billion tokens may make it um, a little bit harder, but it may make it easier. And again, real quick on that government planning, I'm like, yes, I don't know if the ultimate World Economic Forum uh, plan was to try and squash these things or to allow a world of a billion tokens so that they can try to come in and clean it up. And I don't think they know what's better, uh, but they will take advantage of whichever way, you know, the, uh, the world moves, right? They always just try to take advantage of the current situation. Uh, it's like, oh, we're going to try to prevent you from having 
any kind of financial freedom. But if we can't, we're going to make it so stupid and so like uh, irresponsible that you're going to want our help, right? Like I can, uh, uh, anyway, I, I, I don't want to get your spaces banned on Twitter, but the same thing happened with like the ivermectin situation. Like the moment that it was actually hydrochloroquine, like the moment uh, some doctors put out like decent research that hydrochloroquine could actually help uh, a person with COVID. And this one was tricky, right? Because hydrochloroquine didn't help on its own. It's like it helped you absorb zinc some more. And then the zinc part helped. So you have to be taking hydrochloroquine. And then you also have to take a lot of vitamin, uh, uh, vitamin, uh, you have to take zinc, a lot of vitamin, uh, well, uh, mineral zinc and vitamin D. Uh, and then you had um, a decent benefit. But in order to prove this theory wrong, there was a medical, uh, like a medical paper was written where they said, well, if hydrochloroquine helps, let's um, like uh, inject uh, people with hydrochloroquine. And they inject them with like 200 times the recommended dose. They injected people with a lethal dose of hydrochloroquine. It's like, see, hydrochloroquine is killing people. Um, so that's that's the government for you, basically. You can go and look that paper up. I'm not like making shit up. And um, but it's kind of like the same thing, but with finance, right? Well, if we can't stop it, we're gonna make it so we we're gonna make it look unreasonably irresponsible that you then that that we're gonna look stupid for doing what we're doing. So it's so it's kind of like that kind of approach that they're doing. Uh, now back to uh, the investing side of it, and. Um, the hardest thing is to hold on to your money. And it's the same thing whether it's investing and uh, saving for a house or it's whether you're taking on a two-week trade. In the form of a two-week trade, you got to set a proper stop loss. Uh, because if you don't and the thing starts moving against you, uh, you're like, well, turn around. And then it gets worse. And then you double down. And then it gets worse. Um, so the hardest thing to do is to admit that you're wrong. Stop funding projects that are losing money. Cut your ties sooner than later. Um, cut off that investment sooner than later. Uh, don't keep fund uh, projects or companies or loans. Like the moment you realize this thing is going south, you got to get out and hold on to as much as you can. Like I think that's my number one advice is to preserve your wealth as much as you can. Yeah, that's that's great advice. I've heard it said like, uh, you know, uh, let your winners run and cut the losers early. Um, there's a, there's a great book. Oh, there's so many great books. I have to remember the name now because I'm a little bit a little bit underslept today. But um, yeah, that that's that's a great that's a great uh, tip. What what else? Let's say there, there's a lot of people here that are probably not traders. That, that traders are not our particular like our primary audience. Um, and most traders, you know, there's some studies out there that the 90% of traders lose money. And of the ones that do make money, money, most of it, most of them lose money for like 10 years in a row. So, it, you know, being a trader, very difficult, very risky. Most people lose, very few people win. However, if there's anybody out there that's interested in, in being a trader, aside from going to tonevase.com and reading everything you've written, which is a fantastic resource for people in, interested in trading, what do you think? What do you think they need to kind of understand? What else do they need to understand? I mean, can we talk about money management or maybe you know the essence of technical analysis? Whatever comes to mind, what should they get the, get a get a handle on? Well, people have to realize that trading it's not easy. It's no different than gambling, but not exactly gambling. It is gambling in ways that have a 
um, I guess, a thinking component. So, uh, like poker playing, uh, like if you go to a roulette, that's way more random. But if you go and sit at a poker table, there's a reason why the better poker players tend to win more often. Now, it doesn't guarantee that you will win. There's still a component of luck involved, but it's not only luck. And uh, you do have to uh, be smart and properly play poker. Uh, and uh, I actually played with a bunch of friends last night, and I got destroyed. I remember the last time I've gotten that destroyed. I'm usually a pretty good player, uh, but I just got destroyed. And trading is no different. And uh, you either need to start slow and learn yourself from experience, or you need to actually learn from someone. Now, the tricky part in learning from someone is who do you trust uh, to teach you how to play? Uh, or like in the case of driving or you want to be a race car driver, I mean, sure, you can try it with trial and error. I don't recommend it. You really want to go and learn from someone that has done it before. And now the thing is, oh, that person is taking advantage. He's teaching another guy how to race a car when he doesn't race a car himself. Uh, meanwhile, if you don't learn how to properly race a car, you, you, you're going to die. Um, so this is the, the toss-up. Uh, the internet has allowed you to learn for free. And a lot of people think they can just learn for free. And that's possible. You can learn for free. Uh, but you still have to take it as seriously as if you're spending $10,000, $20,000 on that education. So uh, either way, um, you either need to learn it yourself through very, very low risk, like trade, like, you know, enter $5 trades, uh, or you need to pay someone to learn from and you got to find that person you know, properly that you trust, you're willing to give them money, or you can learn for free. So many free resources. But you have to take those resources seriously. And the thing is, people don't take it seriously. And then they're like, oh, TA doesn't work uh, because I studied it for three days and then I took on a $5,000 trade and it didn't work out, therefore TA fails. Uh, well, how much time did you really put into it? How much time did you spend learning it? Um, I was learning it for years and years, and I'm still learning it. I'm still learning new, new, new TA stuff so that I'm aware. Uh, so it's, um, it's something you have to take seriously and educate yourself on before you try to become a trader. And, uh, yeah, I mean, there, there's some great books out there. And, again, like people should go to tonebase.com and, and check out everything that you've been writing for a long time. I just tweeted out an article that I wrote a, a few months ago on some of the best books I've, I've read on financial management and financial literacy. Um, there's there's a few more that I should add to this, but, um, you know, what is there any book in particular you recommend? I mean, I, I'm a big fan of The Richest Man in Babel, and I think that's kind of like the one-on-one, the one-on-one of, of, of financial literacy for people that are not necessarily traders, just like, you know, save 10% of your income in something that's hard money, you know, in their case, they're using gold and they're, they're basing it on like 5,000 year old tablets from Babylon where they invented finance basically. And, um, and then you save that for a year. And then if you're ever going to make an investment, right, this is rule number two of the richest man in Babylon. Uh, you ask three people that work in the industry that you're investing in what they think of that investment, right? Because chances are the guy selling you the investment is selling you a bunch of nonsense. Maybe not. Maybe it's maybe maybe they're legitimately giving you a good opportunity. But if you don't know the industry, 
you you want to make sure you you get a an insider's view of the opportunity. So you ask three people, and I I found that to be pretty pretty healthy advice. Um, any thoughts on that that book or other books or other other tips for people that are not necessarily want to be traders but that want to learn how to you know manage their wealth a little bit better? So I'm not a book person. Um, I don't read books. I just not something that I do. Uh, I'm more of a video learner. Like I want it on video. I want it on audio. Uh, me read. I, I just, it's, um, uh, I hate to think of myself as having a learning disability because I've done pretty damn well. I have three STEM degrees, but if you put two books in front of me, one is the greatest novel ever written, probably in 1984. And the other is a math or a chemistry or a physics textbook. And you're like, Tony, you got to read one of them by the end of the week. Um, I'm pr- I'll probably have more success finishing the chemistry textbook uh, within a week than even a novel like 1984. I need that on tape. I personally don't have the attention span to read a novel uh, or any book, any investing book, doesn't matter. I want to see numbers. I want to see formulas. That's how my brain functions. Everybody's different. This is why the moment I started learning TA, this made total sense to me because I'm a numbers person. Um, I can just like, uh, like, I don't even need to see the chart. Like if uh, basically, if, if, if I was to ever go blind, I would still be able to trade because I can just picture it in my brain. Uh, if someone describes a chart and describes the candles and describes the movement, I can picture the candles in my head. Uh, so every single person is different. And um, it was interesting when I was working on Wall Street, uh, it was one Christmas where my direct manager, who was probably one of the smartest guys at the company, and uh, who happens to be roommates with the CEO when they were in college, which is why like, he ended up hiring him. That was my direct manager. And then the CEO, uh, they had very different views on, uh, I guess, uh, like the business, like sort of different, like, like the, the way you learn, right? So we got two books for Christmas. I got, you get one from your direct manager, and then you get a book from the CEO. And it's funny, the CEO uh, gave us a book. It's called David vs. Goliath. By the way, I read neither of these books because, again, I don't read books. Um, uh, but uh, the CEO gave us a book called David versus Goliath, and it's how to, like, take on these challenges and take on a new challenge and overcome a new challenge. And my direct manager gave me the complete opposite book that was called Strength Finder. It was like, figure out what you're good at and only do that. Like if you are, and the example from that book was, you are an incredible shoe salesman. Um, and yet, because you're such an incredible shoe salesman, your company wants you to become a manager of other shoe salesmen. When in reality, you should not be a manager of other shoe salesmen. You have no experience of being a manager. You're probably a shit manager. You just should continue being the best shoe salesman for your company. So I stick to that kind of approach. Like at this point in my life, I realized like probably about 15, 20 years ago that me reading a book is just a disaster. Um, So either I'm getting it on tape or I'm watching a video. I can watch videos on 2X. I can absorb that information. But me reading at seventh grade uh, speed is not going to work. And I'm not absorbing the information. So I have zero books to recommend. Um, If there are trading and books to recommend, I would recommend the most Technical books there are, which is straight up learning TA uh, or go get the CMT books, which is an exam on TA. Um, As far as investing goes, I don't really invest. I have learned also through experience that me investing in a friend's business 
or me investing in a, like an early stage startup is the number one indicator that the startup is going to go bankrupt and everyone is going to lose all of their money. Uh, that's been my experience in investing. So I don't do that. Um, I just, um, I follow the math. I follow the chart patterns. I follow probability and statistics, which is why I like trading with technical analysis and I like trading uh, and I like playing poker for the same reasons. Uh, I've never studied poker. I've never read a book on poker. I learned through experience. And again, my, uh, ability to just calculate probability and statistics in my head has done a very uh, good job in helping me be uh, probably I've won more money playing poker than I've lost in my life. Uh, I'm not going to make a career out of it. I know better, but it's something I really, really like doing. Uh, now, the other thing that I always talk about is my long-term projections. And again, I've also learned that while I am fairly right on overall macro trends, um, I don't place bets on those macro trends uh, for two reasons. One, uh, the timing of those trends is very, very challenging. Like I still don't understand how the euro exists as a single currency. Um, so the timing of those trends is very, very tricky. I know I'm going to be right eventually, but placing financial bets uh, on those uh, longer term trends I find challenging uh, the the long term uh, like Bitcoin outlook that one you know materialized sooner than later, but it's still taking us a while. You know, I've been in the space for ten years now, and Bitcoin still hasn't taken over the world. So it's we're, we'll we'll get there. Uh, the long term trends do take a while, and the other part is that the long term trends could greatly be affected by uh, large centralized forces. As an example, Trump won. We all know he won. Uh, we know the other side cheated. We know how badly they cheated. It is grossly obvious, and there's nothing we can do about it, right? Like, I tried. I attended my very first political protest in my life and almost ended up getting arrested for it. Thank God I didn't step on the lawn of the Capitol, okay? So, again, um, I love talking about long-term trends, but I don't place large bets on long-term trades. I stick to what I know best, which is TA. That's, that's great advice. And, and poker is a really interesting game as a way to learn money management, risk management, and, and statistics because you really, you really have to A, read the room. B, you have to you know, manage your, your chips you know, because you, if you go all in and you lose, it's, it's game over, right? And then you have to be able to uh, analyze let's say your probability of winning and bet appropriately. I'm not a big poker player. I enjoy poker, but I'm not a particularly good poker player. Uh, so maybe in, in, in terms of poker, what, what, do you, what are some, uh, let's say, tips or, or things that people should, you know, learn to actually get decent at poker? Because it seems to me that if you get good at poker, you're going to get a, good at a, a lot of things in life. You know, it's a, it's a very... Uh, it's a game whose skills are very uh, extendable to the real world because, you know, people are always playing some game and poker faces are more common than we might realize. So, yeah, what do you think about that? So, again, for me, a poker teaches you patience uh, when it comes to uh, investing money or gambling money. So, you know, two sides of the same coin. To me, it teaches patience and math probability now some people play poker by using psychology and reading the the opponent 
that's not how I play. Like, yes, that's a factor, but that's not my primary factor. Uh, my primary factor, my primary ability is me using math and probabilities. Now, most people play poker uh, professionals. Uh, yeah, and, and they, they need to know both. The really good professional is able to do both things. They're able to use psychology and read the opponent, and they know math and probability. They've memorized it all. This is why I'm never going to be a professional poker player because I don't want to take the time and learn the skill to read the other opponent psychologically. That's just not an interest of mine. Um, and I only rely on math and probability, and that gets me by in non-professional games. So this is also why I don't go to a casino and play poker. I only play, you know, house games with, you know, people. Either I know them or I don't have to know them, but as long as it's like I know one person at the table and it's like a house game, I'll play. So um, um, I think it just has a lot of similarities uh, to a trading and investing for me, uh, for me personally. So, so those are my two uh, things that involve money. I don't... I. If I'm lending money to a friend for a business, I have zero expectation of profit, like literally zero. Like I'm like, here it is. I'm probably going to lose it all, but I'm not giving you more. Um, so that's kind of my view on it. I'm not a very good investor. Uh, you know, I, I, there are a couple of people who's like I trust as like VCs, for example, uh, but they're invested in like a pool of funds, you know, to support. I would, you know, uh, be involved in maybe something like that, but uh, not to any kind of a significant amount. Uh, so everybody's different. You just got to find what you're good at. And it's the same approach I tell people when it comes to trading, when I teach people how to trade. There are infinite number of combinations uh, in technical analysis or in your way of trading. The best way to trade is the one you invent yourself. And there's infinite number of combinations to do that. Like I hate follow the leader groups. Um, I think they always lead to a disaster. Um, I teach people how to trade and then I try to convince them to come up with their own system because there's no system you will trust more than the system you created yourself. Um, so that's my other piece of advice is to learn how to trade and then try to come up, come up with your own unique method. And the more you keep your mouth shut and the less you tell people how you're making money, the longer you'll be able to make money trading. Yeah. Yeah. That's good advice. Um, yeah, that's awesome. And so uh, back to the books, just real quick. I mean, I know you don't, you don't read books. So I'll just mention another book that I found really, really good. It's called uh, The Art of Execution. It's a fantastic yeah, heard book. Great things. Heard great things about that one. Yeah, that's uh, that's and, and all, a lot of these books are an audio book as well. I'm also not a particularly good reader. You know, I have like I have a small library that I'm very proud of. But uh, most of the books I've consumed, I've actually listened to. But uh, anyway, that's a great book on uh, on a study that was done on on stock traders and uh, in on Wall Street, and uh, they really they followed him for like six months and did some really deep analysis and identified some some interesting divergent strategies, etc. It's a very interesting book. Um, let's talk a little bit about uh, the price of Bitcoin. I mean, I know you you have a show coming up, so I don't want to keep you for too long. But I, I mean, not just the price of Bitcoin, but the markets actually in general, because you know right now we're seeing the DXY take a major red candle, um, which is kind of surprising, but not entirely. It seems to might be related to this yelling, yelling event in China. Uh, do you have some time to, let's say, go talk about the markets a little bit? 
I do, but I'm literally looking at this now. I, I, I saw it come across my newsfeed this morning, something about Yellen in China, and I thought that was like a Babylon B article because what the fuck is Yellen doing in China? She's the Treasury Secretary. Um, she has no business like, like being in China. It's just weird. Uh, but I'm looking at the scandal now. I have uh, not much of an opinion. So I've been bullish on the U.S. dollar. Uh, for a long time, but, but I'm only bullish on the U.S. dollar, not because I think the U.S. dollar is great. It's because the U.S. dollar is measured against the euro. And I think the euro is an outright disaster. So to me, it's literally really strange that the U.S. dollar is down this much. And uh, there isn't all that much correlation between uh, even dollar and gold. I don't think they're that correlated. Dollar and Bitcoin are certainly not correlated. I'm curious whether gold went up. Uh, on this, the gold did go up a bit, but gold really goes up, you know, for other reasons. Uh, it doesn't have to be uh, have anything to do with uh, with the dollar. Uh, I don't have much of an opinion. I still think that as long as the dollar, the DXY, is measured against Western currencies, eventually those Western currencies are in way bigger trouble than the dollar. Uh, I, there, there's not much to say on this other than. The current administration, the people in the current administration, uh, the Biden administration, the only person, the only person in the entire government, and it's debatable whether this person is a government employee or not. To me, this person is a government employee. The only person that I find borderline responsible and knows what he's doing is Jerome Powell. Everybody else, I find completely clueless in everything in their life. Uh, so I don't have much to say on that. Yeah, and just just a quick recap of the Yellen news the past uh, week or so. Uh, first, Yellen was, uh, let's say, seen in China, right? She went to China and met one of the top CCP officials. And then the, the, the meme was reported as she vowed to him three times. And th this sort of top SEC official basically like, sort of half bowed once and then that's like a huge sort of let's say sign of disapproval right like she showed way too much um let's say approval or 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 you know grace and then he was like not that interested and then some handler like basically rushed in to try to like save the day there but this is this is what i mean like janet yellen has no business going to china well, like they, these people, they have no clue what they're doing in their own profession, not to mention international, you know, politics. Yeah, I mean, it's 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 very strange, you know, that it, it was sort of reported as maybe she was over there trying to get a loan or like get try to convince China to maybe I don't know, are they maybe trying to sway them away from the BRICS and, and this gold standard? Uh, what do you what do you make of that story? Let's, no, uh... no, no, no one knows. Again, this goes back to the earlier conversation. Like all of like the current people in the administration, like at least Pelosi's finally gone. They, they're, they don't know what they're doing. They're completely, uh, it, it, it's really sad. I mean, this is why I have um, such low expectations for the United States as a country based on, uh, like the people in charge of the country right now. Like it has to have a complete, complete overhaul. And until that happens, 
um, it, it's just a disaster. Like, like you can't rationalize this because Janet Yellen had no business uh, going to China. So why did she go and how she acted when she got there? It's beyond uh, analysis because she should have never been there to begin with. And the stupidity of her going there or somebody sending her there has no rationale. So you can't rationalize the outcome because it doesn't make any rational argument as to why it happened to begin with. Yeah, no, that, that, that actually is the most reasonable explanations I've, I've heard. You know, she's, she's, <laughs> nobody knows what they're doing and they we're just watching the consequences at this point. Um, it was also reported that she did shrooms in, uh, in China. So I don't know how they figured that one out, uh, but uh, maybe she'll have a existential experience that will help her see the error of her ways and become a, a Bitcoin maximalist. Uh, let's uh, let's hope that happens. <laughs> if anything could do it, it might be shrooms. But um, all right. Uh, do you want to talk about the Bitcoin price real quick? We were we were breaking out, you know, the past uh, few days. We made a new high against the the local highs. And then we get another crash, another red candle, and now we're still in the range. We're consolidating. Uh, what's your what's your outlook for the next couple of weeks, or how do you, how are you seeing the price right now? Uh, we did pump on that uh, XRP news, uh, so there was a pump involving that. Uh, but in general, I like this consolidation around thirty thousand. Uh, my view remains the same. It's been the same for probably several weeks. Uh, we've been at this in this range since almost a month now uh so when we got into this range at the end of last month like around the 23rd and it remains the same and here it is if we go to 34,000 soon and by soon we've already spent a month almost a month in this range so if in the next three weeks we move to 34,000 i think there will be a rejection there and we're gonna we can fall down to like back to 30 or 28 uh, and then go higher. But if we continue to consolidate in this range for an over a month from now, and we start moving to 34,000 in September, I don't think there would be a rejection at 34, and we're gonna blow right through it and go to 40 and then pull back to 34. So it's basically how much longer are we gonna sit in this area? I am um, either way, I'm expecting us to go higher. I think we are in a proper bull market at this point. I'm not expecting significant downside. Um, I think there needs to be some kind of a ridiculous catastrophe uh, in order for us to go below, say, even 27 at this point. I, I just don't see it. Now, I don't see how Bitcoin price goes below 27. I'm not saying it can't happen, but my odds of that are incredibly low. So either we move to 34 soon, then pull back to 30 or 28, um, or we continue to frustrate people with consolidation for another month and a half and then blow straight to 40. All right. And um, I want to ask you about institutional FOMO because this was a big narrative during the last bull market. And uh, it's not clear to me that we saw uh, particularly much institutional FOMO. Uh, now it's been reported again, right? Like the narrative has returned. And this time it comes with BlackRock behind it, and a, as well as a, a variety of other wealth management funds or institutions uh, issuing ETFs. And there's a real push to do this Bitcoin ETF. What do you think of 
of the Bitcoin ETF situation? Is it good? Is it bad? Is it a threat to Bitcoin? Uh, is that is all of that noise, and uh, this is just the further development of Bitcoin adoption? I don't have much of an opinion. I can, I can, it's one of those things where I could have always made the argument uh, pro-Bitcoin and anti-Bitcoin. It could be bad. It could be good. Uh, I can make the argument in both directions. So it is what it is. There are some things that are outside of our control. And uh, Bitcoin will win no matter what. And we just let, have to let the chips fall as they may. Uh, there are things where... Um, again, you have to know what you're good at, what you're not good at, what, what your limitations are, what you can and can't influence. So I felt that I can influence um, and help people and guide them to the user-activated software. And people still come up to me from those days of 2017 where Jimmy Song and I would constantly do streams explaining the technology and the financial and the psychology of why you need to stay away from Bcash and why Bcash will lose. Um, I, I felt that there are things I can do and say that would help people and would help the Bitcoin industry steer it in the right direction. This is not one of those things. Uh, there's absolutely nothing I can do or say or you can do or say that's going to alter the path of BlackRock getting an ETF and not getting an ETF. So because this is one of those things where nothing I do or say is going to change things, I just analyze it as it happens, and I have no horse in this race. Because like I said, I can make the argument that a BlackRock ETF would help Bitcoin, mostly from it going up in price. And I can also make the argument that a BlackRock ETF would help uh, like centralize Bitcoin, like make it a little less decentralized and a little <laughs> less... Uh, the little man trying to fight the banks and a little more centralized towards the banks. And it's just something I analyze and not something I try to guide people through uh, with my opinion, whether it's good or bad. That's my view on this particular situation. There are just some things that are completely outside of our control. Yeah, and I think that's very wise. You know, Recognizing your own limitations and recognizing what you're good at is probably one of the best things to come out of this conversation, I think, even though we've had a, a lot of fun analyzing all the news that have that have come this past week. Um, but, uh, okay, so, I mean, we agree on some of the facts, right? Like, BlackRock's likelihood of success seems high. Uh, their success would be definitely good for the Bitcoin price. Um, and it would come at the expense of some likely, let's say, um, control over the Bitcoin markets to some degree in the hands of the, the, the elite, uh, which could definitely to the network, but probably not existential risk. Is that a fair assessment? Yeah. Awesome. Awesome. All right. Uh, well, I really appreciate you coming on the show. Uh, there's a few people that wanted to ask some questions. Uh, Patrick was raising his hand and Matt, but I couldn't get him to kept pushing the button. He wasn't able to join in. Uh, do you have five minutes, 10 minutes for questions? Yeah, I do have to get going real soon. So I'll try to right. answer them quickly. If you have questions, yeah. if people commented, yeah. well, like, like that's the other thing with spaces. Like there's that comment thing at the bottom, right. But once the spaces ends, all those replies seem to disappear. Amazing. <laughs> Cutting edge technology, as usual. 
Uh, Patrick, I'm trying to approve your as a speaker, but it's not. Okay, there you go. I have a, I have a question otherwise. So, Tony, you mentioned dollar. Sorry, uh, I was, uh, I'm motoring from uh, New Hampshire to Massachusetts, and I'm driving through this uh, really bad monsoon. So, uh, and I think I dropped out there for a minute, but uh, but I'll be real, I'll be real, real brief. Thanks for having me up, uh, Tony and, and Juan. I'll be real brief, but um, I saw that some people, including Bruce Fenton, were making the point that this ruling doesn't affect stocks because stocks are defined as an investment contract, you know, in the uh, in the securities law from 1933 or 1931, whenever it was. But um, what I'm my point is, why would any company, assuming this ruling stands, which I don't think it will, but why would any company go through the hassle and all the extra disclosures and all the extra expense and all the lawyers and everything? to issue stock to raise funds when they can just start printing tokens and all these companies i know tone talked about a billion tokens but like a company like apple and facebook and google and amazon they can all just start issuing tokens and people will buy them and they can just raise money that way uh why would they have to worry about it so i think uh, part of the uh, i'm looking at the unintended consequences of this ruling and part of it i'm thinking is it could be the death of the stock market if it holds up, because no company is going to want to issue stock, or if they do issue stock, it's going to be to a few select accredited investors and not to the general public, and just to issue tokens to the general public and let them trade that. So that could. Yeah, so Patrick, that's why yeah, I think yeah, this really won't stand. Yeah, Patrick, I, I I agree with you. Uh, no, uh, like a company wouldn't, other than uh, they're relying on. Uh, there are advantages to the American stock market and American financial system is that because it's super regulated, it is more trusted and they could potentially make more money, right? So it's a, if this ruling stands, every single company will need to make a judgment call at how are they going to make more money? Are they going to issue a, uh, you know, uh, a token, hopefully on top of the Bitcoin network and not on top of Ethereum? Uh, and, or are they going to go the traditional route uh, through the stock market. And a lot of it is going to depend on their investors. Uh, their investors might push them into one direction or another, but as uh, investors get younger and younger and younger, and they are more okay with the shitcoin casino, yes, I, I agree with you. Uh, this ruling does open up the possibility that no one will ever IPO again on the traditional stock market. I, I completely agree. Uh, it's not going to happen next year, but maybe next decade, 100%. Amazing. Absolutely amazing. Um, Patrick, do you have any, any follow-up on that, or should we Oh, just, uh, just a quick point. Of, you were talking about The Richest Man in Babylon. That's a great book. Um, and uh, the Babylonians were great um, um, accountants. They invented accounting, and they used, they used a base 60 system for their numbering system, not a base 10 system, because base 10 systems suck. You can't divide by, uh, by three. You can't divide by four. You can't divide by six. In a base 60 system, you can divide by almost any number. So uh, that's another reason why the metric system sucks because it's based on base 10 instead of uh, uh, more logical. Uh, by the way, this is a really passionate subject for Patrick. Him and I, he, I, 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 him and I have hung out and he's really gotten off on this. He loves base 60. Uh, and all of us have used base 60. Uh, our, our watches, uh, you know, our seconds are base 60. Our uh, minutes are base 60. Uh, and that's pretty much where it ends. <laughs> <laughs> you just blew Thanks, my mind, guys. Patrick. I I'm going to have to become Thanks, a guys. base 60 maximalist. But, uh... <laughs> All right. Uh, Matt, welcome to the, to the show. What, uh, what do you, what do you want to talk about? 
Oh, uh, I'll touch on that last part. Um, I think you're we're forgetting the other half of that ruling where, sure, um, selling XRP to d- retail customers and dumb money through programmatic dumping on Coinbase was uh, declared not a securities contract. But the other half was declared a securities violation. They can't you can't sell it to institutions and quote unquote smart money. So I'm sorry, but until institutions and smart money get flipped by retail investors, the biggest money, the most gains, the biggest profits are still selling your stock, your equity, your assets, your commodity to the big institutions and smart money. So, I mean, sure. Does this mean crypto can forever spin up a new coin and dump it on dumb money and low info retail investors yes but all of the big money the the massive wealth is selling it to institutions and smart money so if that's capped from you if that's blocked off from you then you're forever having a glass ceiling above you so i mean you know uh it, it depends what your goal is yeah but uh so so here's the thing uh I think they could have easily gotten around, like all they had to do was provide better disclosures to those institutional investors and they would have gotten away with it. So that, that's, that's part one. No, 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 that, that's, um, that's exact opposite of what, of uh, Joe's point earlier. The, the point was they made, they made disclosures and the appropriate um, information was provided. And the judge ruled that retail investors being so this is kind of insulting to them but retail investors are so dumb that they could possibly that they could never possibly understand what they were reading and that they could never possibly understand the risk they were taking and that that's why it was a securities violation for institutions and smart money because they could read that and understood exactly what they were getting into and the problems they're in that's so it's just a ass backwards uh uh, thing like if it, if it was the other way around, it would have made a lot more sense that uh, the initial investors thing was fine, but the secondary retail was the real securities <laughs> violation. Get, yeah. The whole thing was just completely oh, bizarre. Yeah, yeah, you get no argument. You get no argument for me. This the, the whole to me that the ruling is completely convoluted. It doesn't make any sense when you take a stand back and look at it common sense wise. But like you know, our taxpayer money at work. What can you do? Right. And, um, but, but also like for next time, uh, these institutional investors will just buy it on those open markets. They'll just have, they'll find another tricky way to allow these institutional investors to get in early enough ahead of the retail person. They, 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 they can be very creative with this, right? All they have to do is just not sell it to them privately but sell it to them through these unregulated exchanges, but find a sneaky way for them to get in first and then dump on the retail. This should not be that complicated to do. And they'll find a way to do it real quick. That's true. There's always a creative way where there's a will, there's a way. I agree there. Yeah. So this is a show trial and uh, the show goes on. This is a bit of a legal circus by the sounds of it. And uh, I'm just, Right, it'll be because uh, I already I already thought of one. It could be something like a um, a, a reverse lockup, right? So it's kind of like, well, um, if you buy this token, uh, there is a lockup. Therefore, 
um, the price of the token will probably rise because of this lockup. They're not going to say it so bluntly, right? But everyone knows that whenever there's an initial lockup, like Hex did this perfectly, right? There was an initial lockup. Therefore, uh, the token went up in price. But there'll be like a little tiny disclaimer that says, well, if you put in this much money and it's a large sum of money, then the lockup doesn't apply to you to the same stringent extent. And the sophisticated high net worth guys, they'll be able to figure it out and the retail won't have enough money and they won't be able to figure it out. And that's how the institutional guys will get it at the same time as the retail guys, but still have the ability to dump on retail. Like, like I said, loopholes to this are not going to be hard to figure out. Uh, right. Don't one question from my side. So you mentioned that you're bullish on the dollar. Uh, what is what is the what is your, what is the second best? <laughs> I mean, obviously you're you're long Bitcoin, but from the fiat shit coins, which are your favorite ones? Are there any other than the dollar? Oh boy, uh, let me just double check a chart before I answer this. Turkish lira. <laughs> Turkish lira. Yes. Um, so so for me. <laughs> The next best is um, br quasi-bricks. So here's what I mean. So I don't trust the Chinese currency. I just don't trust anything out of China, right? And the Indian currency seems to be getting attacked by the U.S. government, similar to how the Turkish lira is attacked. Um, I do think that uh, Russia-Ukraine thing is going to be resolved in the next sometime in the next 12 months, or we all die. Those are like the only two uh, uh, possibilities. Um, so I actually am bullish on the Russian ruble uh, and Brazilian real and Mexican peso, uh, because I think Mexico is going to try to join the BRICS, uh, though the U.S. won't let them. So there could be a war between Mexico and the U.S. that's coming, possible. Um, so I'm kind of bullish on those currencies. I'm not bullish on the Western currencies, right? So if we eliminate the Western currencies and South Africa is a basket case, they're part of the BRICS, but they're completely like, like irrelevant. And I just don't trust the Chinese currency, so I wouldn't put any money in there. Uh, but I do think that the other BRICS currencies, including India, can kind of turn it around. But I'm looking at the chart of the Indian currency, and I just don't like it. And... Um, Sometime in the next year, Russia-Ukraine is going to get resolved uh, one way or another. And um, I think it's going to resolve in Russia's favor, just my opinion. Uh, and I think that currency is going to be okay, even though it is in Russian interest to devalue that currency for now. Uh, but I think eventually they will not be able to keep devalue it and the free market forces will take over, especially when the majority of global trade is taking place amongst the BRICS. Uh, people just don't realize how irrelevant the West is about to become in the next five years. The only thing that's relevant in the West is going to be the United States for now until the eventual breakup of the U.S. And it, a lot will depend on the next election as well. Now, I have been to Japan recently, and I am fascinated by Japan. Their currency is completely being annihilated. But to the Japanese, it doesn't actually matter. It's just the, the way their society runs like japan can shut down their borders and have no you know connection to the rest of the world and they will survive just fine it's just they're able to do this like the europeans and americans cannot um we cannot do that like even the u.s has the resources but we just will not we will not be able to produce certain things to survive like, like we won't um 
And Europe is a disaster. Uh, Australia, New Zealand, they're not much better. Uh, and I just have very low expectations of the West. Meanwhile, uh, the BRIC countries will add the Middle East over there. Um, as the U.S. gets weaker, uh, the Middle East will get stronger and have less violence there. I mean, the United States is like the cause of a lot of that shit. Um, so these peace deals between uh, Saudi and Iran and uh, Syria coming back into the fold. Um, I do think there will be peace in the Middle East the moment the United States no longer has the power to do anything about that peace. Uh, I think it'll be way better in the Middle East and they're going to be part of the BRICS. And I think Latin America is going to get better. Uh, thanks to El Salvador leading the way in the future. Uh, Mexico is a little bit tricky. Their currency is strengthening. Their economy is strengthening while their cartels are also strengthening. This creates a really weird dynamic uh, where uh, I don't know if this can go into multiple directions, uh, but it's also possible that the cartels are going to like, hey, how about we actually go legit, uh, which is another possibility and potentially a decent one. Um, so I'm not sure which way that's going to go, uh, but um, it, it's hard to say who the second best is, but I would bet on... The BRIC nations trying to join the BRICS. I think those are the best candidates. Uh, places like the Middle East, uh, UAE, Saudi, uh, maybe even Iran, uh, and uh, Mexico. Um, Argentina's a tough one, but Brazil's pretty good, uh, even though they elected a socialist. It's just weird. It's like so many of these things are kind of contradictory. Um, you can maybe comment on uh, Colombia because you guys have elected an outright Marxist as well. And I don't know if Colombia is somehow getting better or worse. It's like Brazil just elected an outright socialist, but he seems to be doing things right, which is weird. Um, it's it just a really, like, I, I think a lot of things are going to fall into place after the next U.S. election. Yeah, I'll just comment on Colombia's thing real quick. Um, yeah, the, I mean, from my perspective, m most of the people that I know are, like, opposed Petro. Petro seems to be kind of a populist, uh, popular among young people, but not really, like, the my generation or, or my, my parents' generation. Um, and uh, from a media perspective, he's getting uh, crushed. I mean, his administration is, you know, about as much of a joke as Biden's, except that at least this guy doesn't have Alzheimer's. And so, you know, from that perspective, he's got an up. But uh, there's, you know, multiple levels of corruption being blown to the full attention of the of the national press regularly. So he's he's actively attacked by the media, which is weird because it makes me have to side with the mainstream media, which is complete uh, garbage <laughs> in, in Colombia as much as anywhere else. And so that's a little bit strange. Uh, the economy feels slower uh we're not you know from the businesses that i'm hearing about things aren't moving as well as they were last year and crime does seem to be going up uh there's certainly an anxiety and uncertainty in, in in the country in regards to this administration um and uh i think i think the the alliance with like colombia's alliance with uh the united states is sort of uh I guess there's questions about what's going on there because, you know, we've been, the United States and Colombia have been very tight allies for a long time since the drug war. And uh, this guy is kind of a pro-drugs, pro-cartel president uh, that's sort of doing a lot of things to 
let's say, vindicate and, and give power to some of these guerrilla leader, leaders. And uh, people in the country definitely don't like that. I mean, Colombia is a very kind of right-wing country. And so there's definitely very heavy opposition there. It's not clear if it's going to hold or stand. But he's, def uh, he's st definitely stirring the pot. So I definitely don't, I don't know. I, I haven't heard of any, anything about, about Colombia joining the BRICS. So I don't think that's even in the picture. I think no, Colombia is no, like the right wing government. They're not. Argentina's going to try, but they've had so many currency issues. I, I can't see them getting brought yeah. in. Uh, but uh, Mexico would be the best candidate for the BRICS, but the United States will not let them. But it would be awesome. I know Russia is, will really push for Mexico to join the BRICS. Because the Russians would love to see America send their army over the Mexican border uh, because of their political alliance. Yeah, yeah, that Mexico story is interesting because you're right. There's a lot of tensions rising between the states in Mexico. Uh, the cartel uh, migration issues, the child trafficking issues on the border, the lack of a border. Uh, all of those are, you know, it, like political issues that are brewing and, and, and all the fentanyl that's going up. I mean, we don't know what the hell is going on in that border. And, uh, you know, when, when even uh, the leading or like the leading, uh, let's say, counter Democrat politician, uh, um, the, the Kennedy, fuck, so bad at names today, but when, when even he is opposing uh, open borders, then you know, you know, you have a problem, right? Because that means that the Democratic Party you know, I, I, as a whole, is starting to look at this as a serious issue. So, yeah, we could see, I could see uh, some sort of escalated conflict between the United States and Mexico in the coming years. Um, absolutely. All right, Juan, I do have to get going. Yep. All right, well, thank you so much for coming on. Everybody, uh, Unconfiscatable is coming up in December. It's going to be an awesome conference, Bitcoin Maximalist Conference in Las Vegas. Uh, you guys got to check that out. Get hotels quick. And uh, I think I'll probably see you guys there. I really want to, I really want to make it. So um, thank you, Tom, for coming on. Anything else you want to, you want to pump? No, that's it. Uh, just follow me on uh, Twitter and YouTube and also uh, follow the financial summit uh, Twitter handle. We do spaces twice a week. Usually we did skip last week. Uh, we're going to be back later tonight on the financial summit spaces. Just talking about the markets. Awesome. Awesome. Thank you so much, Tony. Thank you to the Bitcoin.com team for helping us put this together. And uh, thank you all for, for listening to this. We'll be publishing this show on Juangal.com very soon as a podcast. And uh, as always, I'll see you guys on the next show. We'll be having uh, Zvetsky and we'll be talking about artificial intelligence, which is uh, fantastically interesting. So I, I can't wait for that show. Uh, Thanks oh, for joining Max. me, guys. Uh, yeah. Thanks to Joe Colasari for clearing up some of the legal stuff on Ripple. Yeah, that was awesome. Yeah, special thanks. We'll, to Joe. We should bring that uh, legal review, a law review, uh, on our spaces. Actually, it's a good idea. And uh, Juan, we are still working on the Bitcoin.com uh, uh, domain. Currently, still BitcoinNews.com, but you should certainly yeah, follow gonna collect us, them too. us on Twitter. <laughs> That's right, BitcoinNews.com.
Thank you for listening, everybody. I hope you enjoyed that show. Tom Vase is one of my favorite people in the Bitcoin industry, and I think we owe him a lot in various um, moments of Bitcoin history. He's had a lot of influence. Um, like he mentioned during this show, his role in the Bitcoin fork war was very important from a media perspective. The shows that they were doing with uh, Jimmy Song influenced a lot of people and had a very important role in that conflict, which I do genuinely believe we won, even though it's still somewhat contentious. Uh, so, yeah, I mean, it's great to have him on, and uh, it's going to be good to see him at a confiscatable, which I'm going to keep chilling probably for the next few months. So if you want to join us and have some fun in Vegas this December, uh, man, just go to unconfiscatable.com, get that ticket before the price goes up, use the code G-A-L-T, like Tom, 10. So that's GALT. 10 and you get 10 percent off 65 dollars off unconfiscatable great time with a bunch of bitcoiners let's play some poker let's play some arcade games let's have a few beers and let's um unwind this year as we prepare for the next bull market which is going to be legendary i think it's gonna be fucking legendary all right love you guys catch you on the next one